Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall, because it had its foundations on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching, because he taught as one who had authority, and not as their teachers of the law. Thanks, Ruth. Well, as you make yourselves comfortable, please do keep um, your Bibles open at that page, and let me pray for us. God, our Father, we pray for the special kind of speaking and the special kind of listening that would allow us to see inside our hearts, and more than that, to see Jesus. Please do that for us this evening, we pray in his name. Amen. Well, I'm Jim, and uh, it has been incredible to be away at the youth house party this week. Um, One of the other leaders, Anne, said to me at the end, when house party finishes, I feel like my tanks are empty, but my heart is full. And I feel the same way, and I think there are a few reasons for that. These young people are very extraordinary, they're incredible listeners. Um, The opportunity to talk and discuss everything we've thought through is a remarkable thing. Your prayers have been a support for all that's gone on at House Party, but more than any of those things, we've had this amazing sermon that Jesus preached, the most famous sermon ever preached, at the heart of everything we've done all week. And now we come to the closing words of that sermon. And Jesus' basic message is unbelievably clear. It is, don't just listen, do something. And to help us understand the context for doing something, Jesus uses a metaphor. He gives us a building metaphor. He says, you're building a house. In 2011, my family and I moved to an enormous house that required complete renovation. Let me tell you a thing or two about building. Um, Once you've decided to start, you are never not at it. And something else, the decisions and the efforts and the investments that you make each day, they determine where you start the next day. And Jesus says building a life is like that too. You're never not at it. And the decisions and the efforts and the investments that you make each day They determine where you start the next day. And I guess as you look at these marvellous young people, that's kind of obvious, isn't it? Think of the sheer number of life-determining decisions that they're facing over the next few years. What GCSE shall I take? What A-levels shall I take? Shall I go to university? What job shall I do? Who shall I go out with? Who should I marry? But actually, Jesus wasn't talking to a youth group Jesus was talking to an enormous mixed crowd of all ages. Jesus was talking to people who were disciples, who had decided to follow him, and he was talking to people who were interested outsiders, who were still making their minds up. He was talking to a group a little bit like us here. And this is what he says in his metaphor. 
A builder uses a plan. You see, one builder decided to build on rock, and the other builder decided to build on sand. And the reason that they chose differently is because they had a different plan. Tomorrow, I will make one decision, and you will make the other decision, and the reason is that we're working to a different plan. And the very remarkable thing Jesus does in his passage is he offers us a plan for this most complex of building projects, our lives. Look at verse 24. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And I guess that leaves an enormous question hanging over this passage. And this is the question. How do I put Jesus' words into practice? How do I put Jesus' words into practice? And so that is what I'm going to try and spend the next 20 minutes or so doing my best to answer. And I have way too much to say. You'll have to put that down to an experience. Um, But actually, what I do over the next 20 minutes is not as important as what you do over the next 20 minutes. And there are a couple of reasons for that. First of all, I'm going to be all over the place. We're going to be reprising the three chapters that we've spent a week dealing with. So you're going to be backwards and forwards over a whole three chapters. But there is a more important reason. And that is because once you've heard Jesus' words, and you will be hearing some of them, there are only two ways it can go. Either you put them into practice, or you don't. And you don't want to be the one who doesn't put them into practice. You see, the second builder... His house crashed, not because he didn't hear, but because he heard and did not put the words into practice. So I guess it's not too late to slip out or cover your ears, but I think a better idea would be to stay in and redouble your listening. So let me begin with what it isn't to put Jesus' words into practice. What it isn't to put Jesus' words into practice. It is not mere compliance. The Sermon on the Mount is packed full of instructions. You begin in chapter 5, verses 3 to 10, with these beautiful statements called the Beatitudes. And each one of those is an implied instruction. Blessed are the merciful. Implication, be merciful. After he's gone through that, between 5.21 and 47, there's a section where he gives instruction and command after instruction. People have compared it to the Ten Commandments. It is packed with urgent imperatives. Love your neighbor. And then he moves to chapters 6 and 7, beautiful kind of wisdom descriptions And each time he speaks, there's a formula, and it's an instruction formula. He says, do not, do not do your acts of righteousness before men to be seen by them. Do not store up your treasure in heaven, it on earth. And so it goes on. But instead, do your acts of righteousness before the eyes of your father who sees what's done in secret. Store up treasure in heaven. A whole list of instructions. And because it's such a packed sermon full of instructions, it appeals to many readers as a code for living. And it's not surprising that it does, because if you could live the way Jesus describes in the sermon, it would be achingly beautiful. So that even people with absolutely no Christian commitment whatsoever look at the Sermon on the Mount and they say, that, that is the way to live. 
But can I give you a few reasons why that cannot be the right way to put Jesus' words into practice? One is very simple. You can't do it. Okay? If you think I'm wrong, read carefully through the sermon and then think again. Maybe try for a day. And if you're still doing okay at the end of that day, and especially if you're still meek and doing okay at the end of that day, go and see Paul Williams because he probably has a job for you. There's a second reason, and it's within the sermon. So there are a whole load of instructions here that are clearly not supposed to be read as direct. If your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. Those are powerful words, and they're written for a purpose. But looking around the room, I'm pleased to see that not that many of you read that purpose as direct instruction, and nor do I. It sounds wrong. There's a bigger reason why I think we're not supposed to read this as direct compliance, and that is because Jesus says famously in chapter five, verse 20, I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Let me tell you this about the Pharisees. They were the first century black belts in code compliance, okay? So when Jesus says that your righteousness must surpass that of the Pharisees, he must be looking for something other than code compliance. So here's my appeal to you. Please do not let your Christian life descend to mere code compliance. If that is what your Christian life has become, go and talk to somebody. Secondly, it's not mere freeloading. These verses contain the most searching expose of the human condition you will find anywhere on the planet. When Jesus describes the gap between the life of the inner person and the outer person, I think, how does he know me that well? When he says, don't do your acts of righteousness in front of men to be seen by them, I think, how did he see that? When Jesus says, Your life is more than storing up and anxiously seeking what you might lose. I think, how did he know I do that with my life? Every statement exposes me. And so those statements show me my need for mercy. God has used these verses to lead men and women to see their need for mercy for years and years. But that is not all that these verses are. Because Jesus is clear that he expects his disciples to live world-transformingly different lives. Flick back with me to 5.14. This is what he says to those who are following him now. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way... Let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. If you see your need for mercy, but you're inclined to accept the mercy of the most self-emptying man who ever lived as if it were self-fulfillment for you, a ticket to heaven, you have misunderstood the Sermon on the Mount Please don't consider this just a prompt to cheap grace and freeloading. If that is what your Christian life has become, please speak to somebody. Thirdly, putting Jesus' words into practice is not mere pretense. You see, we have a problem, and this is the problem. The words search me 
and expose me. I try to live them and I can't. What must I do? By far the commonest reaction to that very good question has a long history in the human psyche. We fake it. You know, I fail to reveal that I'm struggling with pornography because I feel the deep shame that that would bring. Or we argue in the car on the way to church, but as soon as we get out and people can see us, we have these benign and loving smiles on our faces. In a way, I know I shouldn't need to explain that faking it is not the way to put Jesus' words into action, but there are two or three reasons why I do. First of all, we live in a culture that values what we look like on the outside infinitely more than what we're like on the inside, and we're tempted to follow it. Secondly, we are all directly descended from Adam, and the first thing he did when he felt his shame was to dive into the nearest bush and hope that God wouldn't see But thirdly, I think it's a very, very important focus of the sermon. It's all the way through the second half of chapter five. You know those commands that people compare to the Ten Commandments? In fact, they're not the Ten Commandments. They're a random selection. But when you look carefully, they are not random. They have a very important common feature. And that common feature is that they compare how people live on the outside to what's going on on the inside. Just look at a couple by way of example. So if you look at 5, 21 to 22, this is what it says. You've heard it said to the people long ago, don't murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who's angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. And so it goes on. Jesus compares murder, an outwardly abhorrent act, to anger, an apparently private motivation. Look at the next one, verses 27 to 29. You have heard it said, do not commit adultery, but I tell you that anyone who looks lustfully at a woman has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Jesus compares adultery, which at least in that day was about as big a moral evil as was possible, with the very private act of looking lustfully. And we're surprised that he calls those equal, but that is because we do not think like Jesus thinks. For Jesus, what's going on on the inside is as significant as what's going on on the outside. And I think if you want proof of that, just look at what he goes on to say about each of those two things. In the verses following the comparison of murder and anger, he goes on to say that if you take your offering to God's altar whilst you're still out of sorts with your brother, you are being two-faced. It's like hitting a younger brother and going to dad to suck up before it all comes out. That is how distasteful it is to our God. Similarly, with lustful thoughts, he goes on to say that hiding and harboring lustful thoughts makes them so much part of who you are that like an eye or a hand, you will never let them go. So please, don't make your Christian life an act of keeping up appearances. If you're sitting there and thinking, some of my Christian life has become like that, go and talk to someone. So putting Jesus' words into practice is not mere compliance. It is not mere freeloading. It is definitely not mere pretense. Shall we begin to look at what it is? This is a building metaphor. And one of the things you need to know when you're building is, where am I? And Jesus gives us a map. 
Jesus has much to say about where we are in these verses, and some of it is very hard to hear. He's already told us that who we are on the inside is dramatically different to who we are on the outside. He's already told us that we're inclined to live for the approval of other people. He's already told us that we're inclined to reduce our lives to an act of chasing around after what we want and then worrying about whether we can keep it. He's already told us so many things that it's hard to know how to respond. Where am I after hearing all this? Well, wonderfully, he gives us the answer before he even starts. We heard about the Beatitudes in our prayer. And let me just explain a thing about the Beatitudes. Blessed in the Beatitudes is not a reward and compensation scheme. When Jesus says, blessed are those who are going through various kinds of hardship, he does not mean that if you have a hard life, you'll be rewarded and compensated in heaven. Blessed in the Beatitudes means blessed with insight. Right thinking would be a good translation. So what he says in those first four Beatitudes is right thinking are the poor in spirit. If you've heard all of this news about yourself and it makes you realize that you're needy, you are thinking correctly. That's where you are. If you've heard all this news about yourself and you mourn, you think, I'm really not okay, you are thinking rightly. If you hear all this news about yourself and you become meek, you think, I'm really not a particularly uniquely special person, you're thinking rightly. If you hear all this news and it makes you hunger and thirst for righteousness, that's a right, reconciled relationship with God, you're thinking rightly. So in a nutshell, the right-thinking person realizes that they're needy, they're not okay, they're not special, and they're incomplete. That is massive. (laughs) One writer has called that a self-quake, and I think that helpfully describes the way it moves around all the way we normally think about ourselves. It's massive because it's not what I present to you. If you were to have a short conversation with me, I would probably be presenting to you a person who had very few needs, was broadly okay, somewhat special, um, and definitely not in need of any help. And I wonder if I would get the same impression as I was talking to you. It's massive because it's not what the culture tells us. The message about self-concept in the culture is, um, I'm worth it or back yourself. Now look, before you think I'm out to destroy everybody's self-esteem, just realize that what Jesus does is to give you not a down picture, but an accurate picture of where you are. In this map, you see, you're not located below everybody else, and nor, thankfully, am I, but we are located not at the center of the universe, which is where we like to think that we are. In the 16th century, Copernicus first discovered that all the planets don't rotate around the Earth, they rotate around the Sun. And suddenly, everyone who lived on Earth had a changed perspective of where the Earth stood in relation to the solar system. That is the same insight that Jesus brings, and that is the self-quake that should be the part of every single Christian's experience. And it should be part of the daily realization of every Christian. We are lacking 
people who are not at the center of the universe. So if that is not part of your Christian story or not part of your daily Christian life, think about it because that is putting Jesus' words into practice. From maps to basic equipment, Jesus gives us a map, but he also gives us a plumb line. A plumb line is one of those things that shows you true vertical, okay? When we were building our house in 2011, as I've already told you, and we peeled back various layers of wall, I found two or three plumb lines. They're just a piece of string with a lead weight that hangs straight down. You see, when you look up, what do you see? When you look up to God, what do you see? The answer depends, at least in part, on your self-concept. If you believe that you are whole, you will see a God to whom you must prove yourself. And all you can do with a God like that is to fear him. But if you believe, as the Beatitudes would encourage you to do, if you believe that you're lacking, when you look up, you will be looking for a God of mercy from whom you can receive That is basically the difference between the righteousness of the Pharisees who were out to prove themselves and the righteousness of Jesus' disciples who looked to their God for mercy. In fact, Jesus teaches us how to respond rightly to who God is in the Lord's Prayer. Let me read it to you. He, He teaches prayer as a right response to who God is. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. All he said up to that point is I love you. Hallowed be your name. You're the one. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What he's saying is, I want to want what you want. It's alignment. I align my will with yours. And then he goes on. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Utter dependence. Those of you who remember Kate Selby will remember she had a a bit of a taste for prayer mnemonics. Well, Jesus also has a prayer mnemonic, and this is it. Devotion, alignment, dependence, dad. That is Jesus' prayer mnemonic. And in fact, as you read through the next two chapters, he will explain why the Father is the one who's worthy of your devotion and who gives you approval. He will explain why the Father's purposes for your life are so much greater than the minor purposes to which we reduce our lives. He will explain that the Father finds our trust and dependence a sacred offering from us to him. So... Putting Jesus' words into practice means when you look up, you will be looking for a God of mercy, a God who you're devoted to, a God who gives purpose to your life, and a God on whom you utterly depend. If that's not what you see when you look up, talk to somebody. But there's one much more important thing Jesus does for us, because we still need more help. The question is, how can I who have understood myself, possibly look up to God and see a father who is willing to approve of me and willing to let me trust him and willing to give purpose to my life. How can I do that? You see, humanity asks that question and most of humanity decides it's impossible and so they hide the mess and they put their devotion and they put their alignment, and they put their trust in 101 other things apart from the Father. But there is an answer in the sermon. 
And that is that Jesus gives us himself. He gives us a map. He gives us a plumb line so we can see true vertical. But he also gives us himself. You see, Jesus is threaded all the way through this sermon. After the eight Beatitudes, there's a ninth Beatitude. And there, being persecuted on account of righteousness turns into being persecuted on account of Jesus. And when he teaches us those commands that expose our insides, he says, I came to fulfill all of this law. And at the end of the sermon where he prompts us to act, the thing that will determine whether we are in the kingdom of heaven or not is whether he knows us. Not whether we use his name, but whether he knows us personally inside. And what's more, Jesus lived the beautiful life that this sermon describes. You see, Jesus lived every moment for his father's approval. And it came resoundingly when God said, this is my son whom I love, in him I am well pleased. And Jesus aligned the whole of his life to his father's will. He said, I don't do anything except what the father tells me. And most supremely, in the garden before he went to the cross, When he was saying, Father, if there's another way, please let's do it that way, he went on to say, but not my will, your will be done. And Jesus trusted his Father throughout his whole life, finally on the cross, trusting him with his spirit, when he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And Jesus was on the inside so good that that goodness spilled out of him. So that he said about the people who were crucifying him, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. He loved his enemies because of the good inside him. I struggle to know how it's possible that I, being as I am, can look up and see a God who wants to give me mercy. But this I do know, I am lacking, and Jesus is where my hope is found. And I know that the beautiful life that Jesus laid down when he went to the cross, he asks me to take up. And I know that the way of death that Jesus took up when he went to the cross, he asks me to put down. And that means that putting Jesus' words into practice means understanding that I'm lacking. It means putting down a way of life that's become quite normal and taking up a way of life that is quite extraordinarily beautiful because it's Jesus' life. And so if that's not your story, please speak to someone. Let me return, as I finish, to the passage that we started with, where the houses come crashing down. There's some debate about whether the collapse that Jesus predicts is for this life or the end. I think like John Stott thinks, it's probably both. In other words, if you see visible subsidence in your life, that is God's loving way of telling you to act now before it's too late. But there's absolutely no debate about the timing of when to act. The time to act is now. And I suppose as we're sitting here, we're hearing different things about how to act. There'll be some of you sitting here thinking, I know I'm lacking. I know I need mercy and I know I need to depend on Jesus. Well, let me tell you, however insecure all of those feelings may be, Jesus says that means you are building on rock. Be encouraged. 
And there'll be others who think, I've never known what it means to have that kind of self-quake. I've never known what it means to look up and see a God who wants to give me mercy, who wants to approve of me, give purpose to my life, have me trust him. Well, if that's you, please do talk to somebody. Talk to them today. Now's the time to act. And I suppose there'll also be some of us sitting here who think, I have reduced my discipleship to mere code-keeping. I've reduced my discipleship to mere freeloading. I've reduced my discipleship to mere pretense. If that's you, please talk to someone. And I suppose you could talk to me, or you could talk to one of the preaching staff, or you could talk to your neighbour, but there's actually somebody much better for you to talk to, and that is Jesus himself. What's more, if you've heard his words saying any of that to you tonight, he's already talking to you. Just talk back. I'd like to finish by praying the Lord's Prayer with you as an act of devotion, alignment and dependence. And I don't see any reason why we shouldn't do that together. Is there a reason why we shouldn't do that together? Let's do it together. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one.